overwhelmed when I stand before you to open up the infallible and inspired record to you. And yet I do so with great joy, and once again I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. We've been in the Gospel of Matthew now for many, many months, and we still have a number of months to go, but as you can see, every text opens up to us another whole world of truth whereby the Spirit of God can speak to our hearts. And this morning we are now at verse 1 of Matthew 16, and we will be looking at verses 1 through 12. So follow along as I read. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing him, asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the, the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. And the disciples came to the other side and had forgotten to take bread. And Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began to discuss among themselves, saying, it is, is it because we took bread? But Jesus was aware of this and said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets you took up or the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Here we have a historical narrative that gives us a great example of how religious people can hate Jesus. Therefore, I've entitled my message to you this morning, People of faith hating Jesus. Let me tell you a little bit about the Pharisees and the Sadducees so you get it in your mind. The Pharisees, and by the way, the word comes from an Aramaic word that means the separated ones. But the Pharisees were really the, the guardians and the interpreters of the law. And they commanded the loyalty of most all of the Jewish people. They were what you might call legalists. They were legalists to the core. And most of the Jews were that followed them. And like all religious externalists, they were involved in a never-ending pursuit to somehow follow different rules and regulations to convince themselves and others of their spiritual prowess. They were... As phony as a counterfeit bill. And they would be like peacocks, always strutting around, flaunting their external righteousness for everyone to see. 
In fact, Jesus reserved his most stinging rebukes for the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, 27, he said, you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Well, while the Pharisees were legalists, you might say that the Sadducees were the liberals. They were the arch enemies of the Pharisees in many ways. By the way, they traced their origin back to Zadok, who was the high priest of, of Solomon. These were the aristocratic elite. And they boasted many high priests and chief priests from their ranks. And these men denied the immorality, immortality of the soul. They denied uh, eternal rewards. They denied uh, such things. Well, well, frankly, all things that were supernatural, supernatural, like angels or the resurrection of the dead. And they were adamant that human choices and actions were totally free with no influence whatsoever from God. They were very secular, pragmatic people. They were much more politically oriented. They were very wealthy, materialistic. In fact, most of these guys made their fortunes from handling money in the temple, selling the sacrificial animals. You will recall Jesus ran them out. And they held to the notions of Greek rationalism, very philosophically oriented and they saw the Mosaic law as something to be strictly interpreted, but mainly to maintain order in the society. And they were constantly arguing with the Pharisees. That's why this verse is very interesting, because here you have two very different religious groups. And by the way, both of them had their own scribes, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were kind of their their attorneys that went around with them. But here you have two very rel different religious groups opposing each other in many ways, but they had one common cause that really galvanized them together. And that was their mutual hatred of Jesus of Nazareth. You know, in our modern culture of religious tolerance, we would call these people people of faith, which is a rather loose, nebulous term that would define any group that holds some kind of a religious belief, regardless of what it is. Whether it's true or not is really not the issue, because as many people would say in our postmodern culture, you, think you don't really know what truth is. There's no way of really knowing it. There's no real such thing as absolute truth. And so let's don't get hung up on that. But what I find fascinating is that most people of faith in our culture when you really examine what they believe, you will find that like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they also have the same contempt for the Jesus of the Bible. Which is very different from the Jesus that they invent. And like the radically different Pharisees and Sadducees, they may oppose one another in faith and practice whether they be Jews or Buddhists or Hindus or Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or Catholics or Protestants or whatever. But they are all united when it comes to opposing the biblical Jesus and his narrow way gospel. And so when you look at their beliefs, you will see that they have invented their own understanding of who Jesus is and how his saving work occurs and so on. So here we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees, again, the Pharisees being the legalistic uh, 
Judaizers that infected, for example, uh, not only the culture, but especially the new Christian church in Galatia. You remember how they insisted that grace wasn't enough. You remember that and and how you had to you needed to add circumcision and other elements of the Mosaic law. In fact, Paul confronted them in Galatians three and beginning in verse two. He says, did you speak? Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? So you see the corruption of the of the Pharisees in the church in, in Galatia. You also see the same type of thing with the Sadducees in the church at Colossae. Again, the liberal philosophies of rationalism uh, threatened many people in that day. And Paul warned the church in Colossae in Colossians 2, 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And, of course, variations of these and many other heresies have, have utterly destroyed denominations that were once orthodox. Now, before we look at the text, I want to stimulate your thinking a bit, especially with regard to this issue of people of faith, so that you begin to, to, to get a broader understanding of how practical and how relevant even this text is today. First of all, if you take this concept of the people of faith and you look it up on the Internet, as I have done and read other books about this whole movement, you'll find that it is basically a hodgepodge of counterfeit religionists holding to every imaginable form of doctrine or creed, very few of which have any resemblance whatsoever of orthodox biblical Christianity. You will discover that the people of faith, if you look on the Internet, are against things like homophobia. In other words, they're pro-homosexuality. They're, um, they're for stem cell research. They're for pro-choice. They're for the uh, abolition of the death penalty, and on and on it goes. Um, and doing a little bit of research as I was thinking this through, just to think of the parallels of our culture versus the first century, I looked at uh, Amazon.com and I thought, well, I'm going to look up people of faith and all. They had all kinds of books. And I get some of the academic catalogs that have books written by every imaginable person that claims some faith in something. And I noticed they had one large sex section on bisexual and homosexual spirituality written by people of faith. And it's just staggering, the spiritualization of Scripture to support their claims. One book, for example, was entitled Blessed by, B-I, and then Spirit, capital S-P-I-R-I-T. And then the, the caption said, Bisexual People of Faith. And as I looked at it, and this is indicative of many of these things, it was written by uh, 32 uh, contributors who were from the Buddhist, Hindu, 12-step, pagan, indigenous, Christian, and Jewish traditions. And they said that these 32 contributors speak about, quote, the intersection of their faith and practice and their sexual orientation. And the contributors said that, that, and I quote, they find their capacity to love both women and men rooted in their faith traditions, end quote. Now, folks, this is indicative of the spiritual, quote, unquote, religious culture in which we live. And I give this as only one example of thousands of religious groups that are as varied as the animal kingdom, yet they're very tolerant of one another. 
in this great spirit of ecumenism that we have today. Ecumenism, by the way, the ecumenical movement is is a movement that tries to find unity in diversity and, and promote global cooperation with people of faith. In fact, if you study a little bit about the ecumenical movement, you'll find that it's organized under a number of various names. And this is kind of a subset of the people of faith. For example, we can study the World Council of Churches. But all of these organizations in the ecumenical movement are trying to unite, quote, Christians and bring about mutual respect and cooperation regardless of doctrine or tradition. By the way, the word ecumenical comes from a Greek term, oikomene, which is used, for example, in Matthew 24, 14 to describe the entire inhabited earth. Now, certainly this is a noble pursuit because the Lord said in John 17, 21, he prayed for his followers that they may be one father. He says, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. Um, that the world may believe that you have sent me and so on. Likewise, Paul urged the believers in Ephesus in Ephesians four, beginning in verse three, to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Why? He goes on to say, because there is one body and one spirit. He goes on to say there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But friends, sadly, such a noble cause is doomed to failure because it is not built upon the truth. If you study religious groups in ecumenical in this ecumenical Christian movement, you will quickly discover both the legalists and the liberals who, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, have concocted their own religious system. The ecumenical movement is notorious for reducing doctrine to its lowest common denominator, which is basically God is love. And they try to downplay any need for doctrinal unity. They have a very weak commitment to evangelism. They know nothing and they will teach nothing and write nothing about the holiness of God, the justice of God, the sovereignty of God, the wrath of God, and how he has revealed himself exclusively through his word. If you look, for example, at the World Council of Churches, you will see a history of people that have supported political third world leftists and stress social and political action all in the name of Christ. And you will read much rhetoric about the need for religious tolerance. You'll see this also in the whole people of faith movement. But what you will find, dear friends, is that they are utterly intolerant of genuine Christianity. They're intolerant of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give you another example in his lecture, Understanding People of Faith, why religious people can be perplexing and how to better communicate with them. Dr. Roland Sherrill, former professor and chair of religious studies at Indiana University in Purdue, um, challenged his audience on their biases toward religion and religious groups. And he asked them, what is it about religious people that mystifies you or you think is wrong or just generally annoys you? And he has a number of answers that were common, but I'll give you a few of them just to give you an idea of of where many people come from when they look at the knuckle dragging Neanderthals like Dave Harrell. Okay, these people that really honestly do believe that this is the word of God. 
And these people would answer that religious people are intolerant. Religious people, especially they're referring to Bible-believing Christians here. They're intolerant. Uh, they believe that heaven is reserved only for a narrow, select group of people. That they believe that they have a monopoly or mor- on morality and spirituality. He goes on to say that many religious believers um, are blind adherents to their religion. They accept certainty of faith without empirical knowledge, and they are unwilling to question things. His audience went on to say things like religious people turn mythology and metaphor into literal truth and religious people sacrifice reason and rationality for faith. And it goes on. Now, what's interesting, I find, is that these observations are, for the most part, accurate and consistent with New Testament truth and genuine Christianity. Because if you study the Jesus of the Bible, you will see that he was intolerant of sin and deception. You will find that there was a very and there and there is a very narrow way to salvation. You'll find that his law, his standard is the supreme and holy and only standard of righteousness. You will find that he gives the gift of faith to people where they can see things beyond what would seem rational to the world. And you will see that there is literal and absolute truth. And certainly what you will find in the Bible, in the gospel, according to Jesus, is that Christianity mixes with absolutely nothing. Pure Christianity stands alone. Remember, the Israelites began to adopt a pagan worldview back in Exodus. And what did they do? They created a golden calf. They even called it Yahweh. And God came down in his wrath upon them and asked some men to strap on their swords. And the men from the tribe of Levi went and slew 3,000 of the people. So, indeed, the perspective that people have about genuine Christianity is, for the most part, accurate. But what you find, again, is that many people who are longing for unity in the whole ecumenical people of faith movement are ultimately antagonistic towards the truth of the gospel. Now, might I say, friends, I long for unity and I believe that someday we will have it in heaven. And biblically, I see that we will never have it here on earth. But true unity will never exist until, according to Ephesians 4:13, we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God. And that is referring to objective doctrinal unity, not some subjective uh, notion based upon, uh, you know, the love of God and that alone, where truth is often sacrificed on the altar of tolerance. This is why, according to Ephesians four, for example, that you have been given the church has been given pastor teachers to, to teach and to help bring this unity about. Ephesians 4 and verse 14, it goes on to say that as a result, in other words, when you have unity built upon truth, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Paul said in Philippians 2, 2, that we're to be like minded, that that we are to 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 have one accord, be of one accord and and to. Be of one mind. Literally, in the original language, it means we are to think the same thoughts about divine revelation. There's unity. Later on, he talks about how that we are to walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. 
It's interesting, by the way, there is another movement in this whole this whole people of faith movement, especially in the ecumenical world. It's called the emerging church. And I'm not going to get off on it too much other than other than to say it is a growing phenomenon. Uh, you might have heard of, of, of vintage Christianity. It's just a, it's just neoliberalism. It's like an extreme version of the Sadducees, shall we say. And they have a, a passion to somehow be relevant. And so you've got to reinvent ministry to be relevant. But even beyond the seeker movement. And what you will see is they've utterly jettisoned all Bible doctrine because nobody knows truth anyway. So you kind of create your own spirituality. By the way, this is an inevitable consequence of the seeker sensitive movement, which has done everything it possibly could to throw the gate open as wide as it possibly can to allow everybody to come into the church. And so what has happened is people have filled up churches by the thousands who are unregenerate, who have no knowledge of Christ, no understanding of what salvation is and therefore the scriptures to them are utter foolishness and so naturally doctrine has to go the Bible has to go and that's what we're seeing but friends truth is the only basis for our salvation from being set free from the bondage of sin it's truth that unites us with Christ and with other believers truth is the basis of our fellowship uh, the, the Holy Spirit of God is said to guide us into all truth. So he indwells us so that we will understand truth. He informs our conscience. Uh, uh, Paul told Timothy in First Timothy 3.15 that the church is the pillar and the support of the truth. But unfortunately, because the truth is so offensive, people reject it and come along and say, well, you know, we got to come up with a with a different religious system here. But like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, most people hate the truth. They love to live in darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Jesus said in John 8:45, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. By the way, as a footnote, folks, indeed, the truth is inherently defensive. You don't need to run from that. I mean, Jesus said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Matthew 10, 34, he goes on to say, for I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter in law against her mother in law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his very own household. This is why Paul gives us a call to arms for hand to hand combat. With the enemy of our souls, Satan and his minions in Ephesians 614, he says, stand firm, therefore, having gird, having having girded your loins with truth. In other words, the divine revelation that God has given us. You need to be prepared with truth. We're studying that, by the way, on Wednesday nights. So genuine religion cannot be practiced apart from truth. Jesus said we are to worship the father in spirit and in truth. This is always the basis of true worship. A perfect blending of the subjective spirit that is regulated by objective truth. Because, as I say, worship is not an activity. It is an attitude. And so true worship is a is a living doxology of spontaneous praise that overflows from the wellspring of a biblically informed mind that is rooted and grounded in the truth where we have the mind of Christ. And therefore, we have no need for manipulation to worship God. Beloved, we live in a world of lies and liars. 
And the world is drowning in deception. And there's nothing more important in the world than truth. Now, with all of this as an introduction, and this reminder of the danger of phony religionists that really have no commitment to truth, but will come together and unite together against true Christianity. I want to point out three things that flow from this text that I hope will be helpful for you. We're going to learn three important truths over the next few minutes regarding the power of ecumenical hatred and the danger of it. Three essential elements to help us understand why people of faith, so to speak, can crusade for tolerance for every conceivable cause and yet at the same time lash out in violent contempt to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at three things, the bond of ecumenism, the fortress and the judgment, the bond, the fortress and the judgment. Ecumenism, again, an organized religious when we have organized religion, I should say, that either knowingly or unknowingly opposes the truth of Scripture and the gospel according to Jesus. One more special note before we embark upon this for the next few minutes. My desire, friends, is not to not to in any way um, cause you to despise people, uh, these people of faith, these people that I believe are deceived. My, my desire is to, to evoke discernment, not contempt. We need to reach out to these people. We need to love them. We need to give them the truth. We need to invite them into our homes. So please hear that so that they can hear and see the gospel of Christ. First of all, the bond of ecumenism. Notice verse 16. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing him, asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, again, what united these legalists and liberals or rationalists? What, what united them together? Well, the answer is simple. Unbelief. They love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. They don't believe in the real Jesus. And certainly he is a tremendous threat to their livelihood. Because if these people start following Jesus, they're dead meat, so to speak, in the religious world. And like all non-believers, no matter how religious they may be, the Bible says that they are spiritually dead. They do evil continually. They're alienated from God. They're unable and unwilling to understand, to repent, to believe. They all have darkened minds. They've been blinded by sin and by Satan. They're slaves to sin and their hearts are desperately wicked. And the Bible goes on and on to talk about how that they, the only desire they have is for their father, the devil, that they will never seek after God, that the things of God are foolishness to them. This is why Jesus pointed to these religious leaders in Matthew 15, 14 and called them blind guides of the blind. Now, here they come testing the incarnate Christ, seeking another sign, even after they had previously attributed his supernatural powers to Satan. I mean, you talk about phony. Beloved, this is hard core unbelief. I mean, how many signs do they need? I mean, practically all of Palestine had been healed. People were just awestruck with what was going on. And none of them denied that he was doing supernatural things. But they attributed it to Satan. But those who are spiritually blind, dear friends, those who are committed to some type of a counterfeit system, no matter how you try to explain it to them, explain the truth to them, they cannot see it. No matter how obvious it is, notice in verses two and three, he answers them and he says, you know, uh, what is uh, when it is evening, 
you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red and so on. And he talks about he talks about um, being able to discern the weather. And by the way, that was a common way of discerning the weather. We even know that today. A red sky in the evening means it's probably going to be good weather the next day. A red sky in the morning means there's probably a storm coming. Well, he was saying, OK, you, you men know that. But in essence, what he's saying to them is even with your your primitive knowledge of meteorology. Even with that, that far exceeds your knowledge of God, which you claim to be the real experts of. And there they stood in the presence of the Messiah. Now, think about this. Men who were supposed to be theological scholars. Yet they couldn't see it. You know, it's no different today. We see the same thing with people of faith in the ecumenical world, religious unbelievers who know nothing of the true Jesus. Let me give you a few examples of the signs that we have today that point to the soon return of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Daniel 2, you don't need to turn there because I'm just going to go through this very quickly. In Daniel 2, as well as Revelation 13, there is a prediction of a worldwide preoccupation for global unity, both economically and governmentally. And I should even add, thirdly, even for a world religion. And that's exactly what you see today in every country of the world. In Revelation 17:5, there is a prediction of of an apostate world religion. And by the way, there's other passages as well. But in Revelation 17, 5, we read that Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. We read about that time that's coming. By the way, that was uh, that is referring to a a counterfeit uh, religious system that was ultimately conceived in the womb of Samaramis, who was the, quote, queen of heaven. You read about her and all the way back in Genesis 11 and in other texts in the Old Testament. She was the wife of Nimrod in ancient Babel. And all of these unfaithful harlot religious systems that were spawned at Babel when the people were scattered all over the earth are all going to come back home to mama. Babel and the great, the mother of all harlots who birthed them. All of that's predicted. And don't you see that today? Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 1, the spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the truth, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And I don't have to give you the examples of that. Demons that have somehow communicated error to people. And now you have predators in pulpits getting people to believe every imaginable form of of idiocy. Peter warned of a proliferation of false teachers before the Lord comes, how that they would be consumed with greed and power and, and immorality. He warned of an apostate religious system that would come that would ultimately deny the second coming of Christ. Friends, do you realize that even today it is a well-known fact that most Christian religions deny the doctrine of the second coming of Christ? As do all false religions. Ezekiel 34 predicts that God, right before the Lord comes, would bring his covenant people back into the land of promise. And friends, it's a modern miracle to see that Israel has been reestablished as a nation amidst inconceivable world contempt. Jesus spoke of the signs that would occur just prior to his second coming in Matthew 24, which, by the way, parallels the signs given in Revelation and other passages. 
where you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Nations will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, that in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, that many false prophets will arise and will mislead many with false signs and wonders. I mean, can you imagine how gullible people are today as they flock after these false teachers? I mean, friends, all of this, I mean, the drum roll has begun for the curtains getting ready to open up for the Lord to appear. He goes on and, and warns of how that in those days, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Jesus warned before he comes, there will be granite indifference with respect to the coming judgment as in the days of Noah. In Revelation Chapter two and three speaks of days of unprecedented apostasy as as it goes through the the actual historical churches there. The seven churches in Asia Minor, minor, which really represent various kinds of churches that that perennially exist throughout the church age and ultimately ends with the church of Laodicea. You will remember that church. It's the church that was lukewarm, that literally made Jesus want to puke. Referring to a form of Christianity that thinks it's something when it's nothing. And he says there in that text in Revelation 3.20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. In other words, he's only outside of what is what claims to be a church. Jesus is only outside. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. Now, friends, the point is simply this. Like the ancient Pharisees and Sadducees who could not discern the spiritual signs of their day. So, too, counterfeit religions cannot discern the signs of our day. And for the same reason, because they are spiritually blind and they do not believe the narrow but true gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus predicted this in Matthew seven thirteen. He said, enter by the narrow gate, referring to the gate of salvation, For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it. But the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And few are those who find it. And then he goes on to warn of false prophets disguised as Christian pastors. That fill pulpits in Christian churches and preach a wide gate gospel. So, friends, first of all, the bond of ecumenism is unbelief. But secondly, there is a fortress in which ecumenism lives, and it is the fortress of satanic deception, of counterfeit religious systems. There are strongholds or bastions of deception that imprisons the souls of religious unbelievers. That's why in verse four here, he calls them an evil and adulterous generation that's seeking after this sign. Now, remember, their motive now, when the Pharisees and Sadducees come to Jesus, their motive was to tempt him, not to be taught by him. And like all servants of Satan, they're always trying to tempt the Son of Man. You see this all through his, his life on earth. Trying to get him to react out of, uh, out of frustration and therefore violate the Father's will and thereby disqualify him as the sinless lamb that would satisfy The justice of God. And so these religious phonies are united against Christ by unbelief, but they're also incarcerated in a satanic fortress of deception. 
And again, this is why Jesus later warned the disciples in verse six, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, let me digress for a moment because you need to understand this. Sadly, the disciples failed to bring bread with them as they uh, travel to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. You see that in verse five. And so they were much like I am. They're way too preoccupied with eating. And so they're worried about what we're going to eat. And their minds are on what we're going to eat. We don't have any food here. And they should have been more concerned about the more important spiritual issues. By the way, this well illustrates, doesn't it, the same reality for most all of us. Like the disciples, we tend to be way too preoccupied with the temporal and seldom focus on the eternal. We're always worried about things here on earth instead of being on guard and being vigilant with respect to our spiritual life. We're always obsessing about our physical needs, which the Lord has promised to meet. So anyway, the disciples were confused at first when the Lord warned them about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're, 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 they're thinking bread, you know, because they're hungry and they're worried about that. And, and it requires the Lord to remind them of their little faith in verses 8 through 11. Well, now, what was this leaven of which Jesus referred? Well, the answer is in verse 12. The teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, remember, leaven is used biblically. As a as a figure uh, to depict a powerful and undetected influence, we know that just a small amount of leaven um, can, as you place it into uh, dough, it can that fermentation process can cause that massive amount of dough to rise. Now, in this context, it's important for you to understand this. Leaven is used figuratively to describe the powerful and undetected harmful influence of the conduct and the creed of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, again, remember, the Pharisees were the hypocritical legalists. They were all sizzle and no steak. They had a veneer of godliness and spiritual life. But on the inside, they 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 stunk as they emitted the, the, the rancid odor of a spiritual corpse. And some of that, as we already discussed, was was infecting the church in Galatia. The Sadducees, the religious liberals that were denying all things supernatural, filled with greed and pride, materialistic. They were in religion for how much they could make. They also were people to be wary of. And so that's why he's saying to the disciples to be careful. Don't allow them to influence you, lest you subtly and unwittingly become like them. I want to talk more about this fortress for a moment. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We hear the here we see the Apostle Paul speaking of this fortress of satanic deception that so many people live in. People that we need to love and care for as we present the truth of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 3. The Apostle Paul writes, for though we walk in the flesh, in other words, although we have human limitations. We do not war according to the flesh. Now, again, the assumption here is that we're at war. And certainly we are. We're at war with the kingdom of darkness, with Satan and his minions. But he's saying, even though we have human limitations, we, we don't fight this war with our flesh. Verse four, he says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. 
The word weapons there would be a reference to the weaponry that all Christians have. We read about it in Ephesians 6 and other passages. We have two things that we use to fight in this battle for truth, and that is the word of God and prayer. And so he's saying here that our weapons, the word of God and prayer of our warfare are not of the flesh. Again, it's not something that we conjure up, but they are divinely or supernaturally powerful for the destruction of fortresses. In other words, we are fighting against ideologies that have been concocted under the influence of demons. Ephesians six twelve and, and other passages. And in order to do that, we have to know the word and we have to pray. We have to be in communion with God in order that we can destroy these fortresses, which is another way of describing a stronghold or a prison or something that incarcerates someone with deception. Verse five, for for we are destroying speculations. Another way of interpreting that would be false ideologies. Think of the false ideologies that we have in our world today. This whole ecumenical movement, uh, this, you know, be tolerant of everything except truth. Uh, postmodernism, uh, political correctness, whatever it is. If we're going to destroy that, and verse 5 goes on to say, and every lofty thing or every proud intellectual thing that's raised up against the knowledge of God, what do we have to do? We have to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, my point with that, and you can go back to Matthew 16, is to simply say, folks, there is a fortress out there of satanic deception in which People of faith, false religionists live. These systems of counterfeit religion are extremely powerful. That's why in Ephesians 6, 11, the Apostle Paul says that we're to put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes, the cunning deceptions of the devil. The fortress of deception in which unbelievers are in bondage is ruled. It is guarded by Satan and his minions. That's why in Ephesians 6, 12, we read that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, which, by the way, defines a or or describes a, a strata or a ranking of supernatural forces, an empire in the kingdom of darkness, a very highly organized, brilliant, cunning, deceptive and wicked system. Folks, we fight an ancient and formidable foe. And they control the fortresses. So how do we stand firm back in Ephesians 6? Well, he says, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins. In other words, you've got to be prepared. You've got to gird your loins with what? With truth. And the word truth there is a reference to the divine supernatural knowledge and body of truth that God has given us in his word. Now, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the ecumenical world does not understand the truth. In fact, they resent it because, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world, referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. There are so many evidences of this today, and it breaks my heart when I see what's happening. I I think, for example, of Fuller Theological Seminary which was once a strong Orthodox seminary. And I see the staggering apostasy that's coming out of that school. One example from Fuller in a Los Angeles Times article 
They're, they pledge to no longer proselytize or try to evangelize Muslims for a period of time. The seminary believes, and I quote, that Christians, Muslims and Jews worshipped the same creator and God of Abraham, but have different understandings of the divine nature. Friends, that, that, that is that is utterly idiotic when you study the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the God of, of Islam. They go on to say that they pledge um, uh, uh, or the article goes on and says that that pledges against proselytizing one another's communities would apply only to the two year peacemaking project and would not prevent either side from sharing their respective faiths during that time. in what Fuller scholar J. Dudley Woodbury called gracious evangelism, end quote. Now, folks, what's gracious evangelism? I, I, I know what it means. to I understand the idea of being gracious and being loving. But friends, if in any way that mitigates the truth, that is not evangelism. Dear child of God, I tell you, at the risk of risk of sounding hideously arrogant, you, you've just got to be wary of the fortresses of deception. They are ubiquitous these days and they are entrapping people. And from these fortresses ooze the metastasizing corruption of false doctrine, the leaven that the Lord warns us about. I'm amazed as, as I read of, of the following of some of these teachers out there today. Thousands of people following, for example, a man by the name of T.D. Jakes, and you've probably seen him. And, and, you know, he says some good things, but my, some of the things that he says and the emphasis of his ministry is so radically different than New Testament Christianity I was reading an article in Christianity Today the other day, and they were praising T.D. Jakes, as they often do uh, praise people like this. But, friends, this man, for example, is from the Oneness Pentecostalism movement. I'm not going to get off on all of that other than to say that one of the main things that they believe is they that they don't believe is the Trinity. They reject the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, friends, if you reject the doctrine of the Trinity and you just say that God manifests himself sometimes as the son, sometimes as the father, sometimes as the Holy Spirit, as they do, which, by the way, is ancient modalism, which is a heresy. If that's what you believe, dear friends, that is not the God of the Bible. I don't know how else to say it. That's not the God of the Bible. I can go and I don't want to get off on the Trinity other than just maybe give you an example. You can go to Matthew three. Remember, John is baptizing Jesus. And as Jesus comes up from the water, what comes down upon him and descends upon him as a dove, the Holy Spirit. And then in the midst of that, the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, what am I supposed to do with that? To deny the Trinity, dear friends, is to literally eviscerate the selfless love that is found in the eternal relationships between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to somehow destroy uh, the, the distinct roles that they each play. Dear friends, the Trinity is at the very heart of the gospel. It is central to understanding the doctrine of salvation. It is sad, but it is so indicative of experience-driven theology that is nebulous and flawed and yet they're all people of faith. And friends, this is my warning to you. My heart grieves for those that are shackled to the walls of these dungeons of the doctrines of demons. Again, we need to love them. We need to pray for them. But we need to warn them and give them the truth. 
But, you know, I I find that as a pastor, certainly my calling is I also have to fight them with all of my being, lest they lead my family astray and me astray and you astray. Jude says that we are to contend earnestly for the faith. And Jesus warns all of us, as he did his disciples, that these are an evil and adulterous people. They're unfaithful to the true and the living God and his revelation to man. So he's saying, watch out, beware of their leaven. By the way, might I also add, be very careful when you go to rescue people from cults or some kind of counterfeit religious Christian system. Even like the one I just mentioned, be very careful. Because, again, it only takes a little bit of leaven to influence the whole lump, right? Jesus is very concerned about that. You see, false doctrine, dear friends, it is powerful. It is ingenious. It is dangerous. And it is often imperceptible. Many times I find that people know error better than you're going to know truth. So you need to be very, very careful. I'll give you one example of this, talking with some friends in the Southern Baptist denomination. And I used to be in that group for a period of time, went to a Southern Baptist church. They're lamenting over how many thousands of people they continue to lose every year to Mormonism. Well, I don't find that surprising at all. And I told them this. Southern Baptists, I believe, are easy prey because Southern Baptists, like so many people, have for years downplayed the need to understand Bible doctrine. All you have to do is look at their Sunday school curriculum. And you'll find that it is a commitment to make the obvious even more obvious. And so people never grow. They never develop any discernment. Moreover, many Southern Baptists are very sympathetic to Freemasonry. Many of them are even in the Masonic Lodge. And dear friends, if you understand Freemasonry, you'll know that Freemasonry is a sister to Mormonism. Brigham Young and Joseph Smith were 32nd degree Masons. It's very dangerous to interact with people that that are in these satanic deceptions because it's easy to kind of get sucked in. And that's what a lot of I know Southern Baptist people are doing. And of course, many of them, I'm sure, are unregenerate, though they might be very religious. By the way, this is why Jude 23 says that we're to handle these people with fear. It says pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. In other words, be very, very careful or you're going to get burned when you deal with these folks. Everything about them is defiling. Their beliefs are toxic. Be careful. So as we conclude here this morning, the bond of ecumenism is unbelief. The fortress in which they are incarcerated is satanic deception. And finally, there is a judgment for ecumenism. Verse four, at the end of the verse, it says, a sign will not be given, Jesus says, except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. Friends, this is a chilling statement. There's not going to be a sign. No more signs. You've had enough signs except one, the sign of Jonah, which, by the way, was a reference to his bodily resurrection from the dead, as Jesus described earlier in Matthew 12, verse 40 of that text. He says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And you see, this would be the final sign that Jesus would give the people. A miracle of a miracles, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet they still did not believe. You want a sign? I'll give you one more sign. He's saying the sign of Jonah. By the way, isn't it interesting that they even 
The, the, these same people went and bribed the soldiers in charge of guarding the tomb to try to get them to say that somebody stole his body. I mean, friend, friends, when you're hardened in unbelief, when you have deliberately hardened your heart against Jesus, no matter how obvious the sign, you will never believe because God will abandon you. And this is the chilling statement here in verse four. And he left them and went away. The word left literally means to abandon, to desert, to leave them behind. He turned his back and walked away from them. He forsook them. This is the wrath of divine abandonment that we read about, for example, in Romans one, when people know the truth and yet they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And they're without excuse. And God gives them over to a worthless mind. He abandons them to the consequences of their iniquities and, and gives them over to, to, to the lives that they want to, to live because they have chosen to disregard the truth of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, this is the judgment of ecumenism. He simply turned and walked away from those ancient people of faith. The evil and adulterous generation. And certainly this is a preview of eternal separation from the presence of God and eternal judgment. Well, let me ask you, what about you? What about you? Are you like many people of faith? Perhaps hardened in unbelief with respect to the true Jesus, the true gospel that he preached? And if you examine your heart and your life, you, you'll have to admit that you really resent his claim of being the only way. Surely there have to be other ways. Is that you? Do you resent his call to self-denial, to obedience, and to live for his glory? Do you find yourself bristling when you read about him coming again, not as a lamb meek and lowly, but as a lion? coming in wrath and judgment? Are you perhaps like many ecumenists incarcerated in the fortress of some satanic deception? Oh, but you're adamant about certain beliefs that you have, certain beliefs that your mama or your granddaddy told you, or that you read somewhere in a book, and you kind of like these things, even though you know very well that you could not defend them biblically. If so, dear friend, if you continue in this vein, with this attitude, there will come a day, and I hope it's not too late today, when God will do to you as he did to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when he turned his back on them, when he left them and went away. May I call you with all humility, but with all boldness and truth, to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and come and worship him indeed in spirit and in truth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. And we realize that were it not for your mercy and your grace, we would still be hardened in our hearts, shackled to the walls of some fortress of false teaching. And Lord, we confess that it is nothing of ourselves that has freed us from that, but it's purely and solely of your grace. And we praise you and thank you for that. But Lord, our hearts are heavy for those that we know and that we love. 
that are still incarcerated in these prisons, in these fortresses. Lord, we pray for those people of faith that need the gospel, who have deceived themselves and have been deceived by the enemy of their souls, that somehow their system merits your righteousness. Lord, how we pray that you will use us to bring conviction to their hearts and lead them to a saving knowledge of the gospel of Christ. Thank you for ministering to our hearts this day. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cbctn.org or call 615-746-0113.